even the ones that attack you, that person's still your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor, not just the ones who are easy to love and to respect, the ones that are a little more difficult as well. Well, greetings again. Like Pastor Tim said, I am Mitch Tucker. I'm the high school pastor here. Uh, it is VBS week, and so VBS week is uh, actually my wife. Uh, church anniversary. So uh, nine years ago, I started this week, and I've been uh, the high school pastor here for, uh, for nine years, um, humbled and, and thrilled to continue that role, and also thrilled this morning to, to bring uh, the message here today. So a couple weeks, as Tim said, we, we started our summer series with our worship rallying cry of, my God can, my God will, and even if my God doesn't, even then, even then we will worship him because our God is still good and he's still right there with us and he still has an awesome plan for our life. Pastor Steve, last week we started uh, going through the book, the New Testament book of James. Last week, if you weren't here, it was even in the midst of trials, in the midst of hurt and losses and as we heard already today, tragedy in, in Mackinac, even then, and even then we will worship our king. Even then we will worship the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, because he is still good, and he's promised to always be with us for all of eternity. Well, we're going to continue through the book of James this summer. We're going to be in James chapter 2, and James is going to bring up a topic that if we just leave unchecked in our life, it will incredibly hinder our worship. So let's dig in some point. Let's get to our first of two points here today. First point is this. Allow the love and worship of Jesus to impact how you treat all people. Allow the love and worship of Jesus to impact how you treat all people. So James chapter 2, starting in verse 1, James says this, My brothers, and I know we're only two words in, we're going to stop there. So, and you're like, oh, we are in for a really, really long message. <laughs> and you'd be right. No, <laughs> so, Steve last week talked about the book of James, the, the human author most likely is the half-brother of, of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he's writing to individuals who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. They have confessed Jesus as Lord of their life, but they also come from a, a Jewish background as well. So we have to remember he's, he's writing to believers that have a Jewish background. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, hey, my brothers, we, we, we've got something that if we continue to, to just allow in our life, allow in our heart, it's, it's, it's going to create a ceiling as we grow, as we hold our faith in Jesus Christ, as we grow in him and one degree of glory to the next, it's going to pose a ceiling. And we're not going to be able to, to continue to grow. And that's favoritism. That's partiality. That's prejudice. In my studies these last handful of weeks, this is where I, I, I settled regarding a definition all right, a definition of prejudice. It's a humanity-based judgment. Starts out real well, right? Not at all. It's a humanity-based judgment on the value or worth of a person so that one favors one group or person over another. All right, it's a humanity-based judgment on the value or worth of a person so that one favors one group or person over another. James says, hey, brothers, if, if we allow this in, in, in our heart, right, we're, we're going to create that ceiling of, of worship because our God is, he has no business in partiality. 
our God does not show favoritism. See, a humanity-based judgment on the value or worth of, of a person really is dependent upon an, an outward appearance. That's how the world focuses and, and sees and is able to make incorrect judgments on an, on an outward appearance. You go back to uh, a chapter like Isaiah chapter 53, the, uh, the suffering servant, and you see um, our God, when, uh, when, when, uh, when Jesus took upon flesh and he came in his first coming, he did not concern himself with an outward appearance. Isaiah 53 says, hey, when the Messiah comes the first time, he's not going to come with an outward appearance that's going to be incredibly attractive through the world's standards. He's not going to be a head taller like everyone else, like King Saul. He's not going to come from a very wealthy or powerful family. He's going to come from a, a poor family. He's going to be born in a very um, unassuming town of Bethlehem. He's going to be raised in a, in a dirty, with a bad reputation town of Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? His family's going to be riddled with scandal. He's going to be a poor man's son. There's nothing about his outward appearance that the world says, oh, this is, he looks the part. Here's the Messiah. Here's the anointed one. Let's all worship him. No, the world made a humanity-based judgment, and most people just passed over him because of what they saw on the outside. But our God does not, not dependent upon outward appearance. No, he, his glory is based upon who he is. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is the God who loves us so much that died in your place and in my place, and then he rose from the dead, forever defeating sin, forever defeating de death. His glory is based upon who he is, not what he looks like. And not only that, our God does not, not show favoritism. He does not show partiality. We can go to many chapter and verses. My thought is probably that the clearest one is Romans 2.11. It's just five words. You don't have to turn there. All right? It says, for God shows no partiality. Romans 2.11. Right? For God shows no partiality. You do not need a seminary degree to understand what that verse means. Right? God, he does not show favoritism. He is not concerned about his, his own outward appearance. He also is not concerned about our outward appearance. He, he's, he's concerned about our heart. Have we put our trust in Jesus Christ? Have we admitted that we're a sinner? We need a Savior. Do we believe the truth that Jesus died for our sins? Do we believe the truth that he rose from the dead, that Jesus is God? And have we confessed Jesus as the Lord of our life? Have we become a new creation in Christ? So our God, he himself does not concern himself with outward appearance, nor does he favor us in, in that lens and through that filter as well. And so James says, hey, I'm going to give you a scenario. We get to verse 2. Here's the scenario. It says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. We'll just pause right there. So that's the scenario. All right? We have two individuals coming into the assembly. For our purposes, right, they're walking into church. Okay? So the first man comes in, and you can tell by his outward appearance that he's got some money, right? He's got a gold ring on. He's in fine, expensive clothing, and so he steps into the assembly, all right? Second, second guy comes in, and he does not have the resources as the rich individual. He comes in the clothes that he was probably wearing yesterday, 
and probably the day before, and the day before that, and the day before that, and so on. His clothes maybe have some holes or tears in it. Maybe they smell a little bit. The word here was was shabby. It's kind of dirty. He's in some, not the best clothing, right? And on the outward, sees differences, right? The rich person in his fine, expensive clothing and the poor person in his shabby clothing, right? But they're both coming in the same place. Both walk into the assembly and the, the scenario continues on. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the rich man comes in and it says, you, if you pay attention to the rich man. So it has this, uh, this idea of you, just, you, you drop everything. You drop everything, and you're, you're going to make sure that this man's got the best seat in the house. You, you walk him around into the atrium. You get him a cup of coffee. You introduce him to a few people. Hey, have you met this person? Have you met this person? You walk him into, into the worship center. I asked our sound people this morning, what's the best, all right, what's the best place uh, to sit as the sound just kind of converges all there? It's actually right, right around here. All right? So we have a, a few empty chairs from the, the best seat. Maybe you knew this was coming, all right? So you, you, you push all the people out of the way and like, hey, this is right here. Right here is the best seat. This, this one is, is, is for you. And then the, the poor person's right here and you, you, you hardly even give them any eye contact. You kind of let them know that they're almost like, kind of just like occupying space. They're just, they're just kind of there. And you're like, you know what? There's, there's, pro- there's probably some place like in the back for you. Let's just to stand maybe. We'll, we'll find we'll find some place kind of out of the way. Maybe maybe you're uh, maybe, you know maybe it's kind of too full in here. Maybe just maybe just maybe out even in the atrium a little bit. And the last phrase it says, or you can sit at my feet. Literally, what that means is that you've asked them to be your footstool. How degrading, right? James says, "Hey, you've 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 judged that poor person. You've made a humanity-based judgment upon." an outward appearance, and you've become that person's judge. There is one judge and ruler of all. His name is Jesus Christ, right? That role is reserved for him and for him only. When, whenever we as humanity take upon the role that only belongs to God, we are all horrible at it. And all God's people said, amen, amen. I agree with you. And so when we take on the role of judge, we do so poorly, right? We judge with evil thoughts. We judge with selfishness in our heart. We judge in a way that's to elevate self, to make our God big, and to make us seem bigger than, than, than what we should be. So before I became the high school pastor here, for nine years I was a youth pastor in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And so about halfway through those, those nine years, there was a, an area high school um, that had a really, really good boys basketball team. It was a, it was a bigger school for, uh, for Iowa, had about 2,500 students in there. Uh, they had not been to the state finals or the state tournament for like 20 or 30 years. So it was a big deal when they made the state tournament. 
Well, the, the night before the first round of the, the state playoffs, one of the star players, he got into some trouble. He went to a party where there was some underage drinking, and he partook of it as well. Cops showed up, he got arrested, and then he was kicked off the team. So the next day, high school plays their first round in the state, and they lose, because one of their star players was kicked off the team the day before. Now, he was 18 years old, and so his name was in the papers. Everyone was talking about him. Social media was having a field day. This, this young man's name was, was, was just being right through the mud. A few days after that, youth group time, this guy shows up. Now, he already stands out because he's about 6'8", six, 6'9". Six, <laughs> Actually, the, the senior pastor's youngest son, he was on the basketball team as well, so we, so we invited him. I walk into the youth room, and you, you, can, you can feel the, the uneasiness and the tension and the awkwardness in the air because we have a, we have a visitor. 6'8", 6'9", but everyone knows his name, and everyone knows what's been happening in the last handful of days, and it's just awkward, and it's just weird. After a couple minutes, one of my students uh, comes up to me and says, Pastor Mitch, like, we, we, we had a plan um, for, for tonight, but like, it, did, it doesn't seem to make sense right, right now. Like, what, what, what are we going to do? There's just this, this weird awkwardness in the air. And he, as this student continued to, to talk to me, what he was insinuating was, perhaps I need to go to this student and say, you know what, let, let's, let's kind of talk one-on-one, maybe even on, on another day. There's, there's some things that we're going to do here, and, and maybe it's best that you're not here. One of those moments as a pastor or a parent or a teacher that make you go bald, right? So as if you haven't been listening to, to God's word all of these years. And I said, you know what, God's got a better plan tonight. And, and instead of the awkwardness ruling our worship, let's have Jesus Christ be the focus. Let's introduce this young man whose name was been raked through the mud. Let's introduce him to the God-man who, even though he had done no wrong and no sin was found in his mouth, his name was raked through the mud and he was mocked relentlessly. Let's introduce this young man to the God-man, Jesus Christ. Let's tell him the gospel. Let's tell him that his God loves him so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for the things that he has just done. And he loved him so much that he died even on the cross, taking a murderer's death. And then he, but then he rose from the dead, and you can have eternal life if you would confess him as the Lord of your life. I said, we're, we're, we're not going to let our worship be distracted. We're going to point this young man to the forgiveness and the hope that's only found in the name of Jesus Christ. But the student that came, came up to me, you, you could tell they were dealing with a, a heart of pride. And a lot of times that's where favoritism and prejudice comes from, is from a heart of pride. And what pride a lot of times does is it blinds us to truth. It blinds us to reality. It blinds us to what truly is going on. So naturally they're going to ask the question, well, well then how do I resist prejudice? Right? Here's top four ways. Top four ways on how to resist prejudice. All right, number one, God's glory as seen in his word. God's glory as seen in his word. 
we understand that the more that we know of who our Lord and who our Savior is, his heart, his compassion for all people, then naturally then it will then overflow to our actions as well. Number two, my weakness in light of his perfection. My weakness in light of his perfection. To bring in, in a humble attitude, a prayer that admits our limitations, right? Admits our weaknesses, admits our limitations, and then gives a worshipful awe of Christ's perfection and judgment when compared to our limited judgment and perfection. That's number two. Number three, God's mercy to save me. God's mercy to save me. It's that constant reminder that God said no to something that you and I deserved. That constant reminder that God said no to something that you and I deserved. We deserved to be separated from the blessings of a good God forever. But then Jesus became obedient to death and said, said no. Even though they deserve to be separated from the blessings of a good God forever, I love them so much. And so my mercy says no. I'm dying for this one right here. God's mercy to save me. And then finally, number four, my privilege to share. My privilege to share. To understand that God chose me in all my weaknesses and all my limitations to be his spokesperson, to proclaim his gospel for his glory and for his fame alone. So a couple questions to start us out today. Where are you tempted to treat others differently? Where are you tempted to treat others differently? We talked about um, the assembly and here at church, but favoritism and partiality is not just restricted to here, right? So where are you tempted to treat others differently? And at the same time, how are you doing? How are you doing in bringing this to the Lord and trusting in him? So as we bring those two questions to the Lord in prayer, let's get to our second point. Second point is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Starts out in verse 5, it says, listen, my beloved brothers. All right, he's added a couple things. Verse 1, it says, hey, my brothers. Now he says, hey, my, my beloved brothers. And it's almost as if now he's, he's sitting down with them and he's urging them, saying, hey, we, we, we cannot let this just go by. We cannot be content or complacent just to have favoritism remain in our life. So, beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? God does not operate like this world. God does not operate like this world. He takes those that the world pushes aside as insignificant, like the poor, and brings them close to him to be rich in faith and says, I died for you, I love you. Trust in me and you will be with me for all of eternity. God does not operate like this world and all God's people said. Amen. And as, as you were reading and as you were listening to me to, to verse 5, did, did, that, did that verse sound a little familiar? Have maybe you heard something like that before? Really, what James is doing right now is he's reminding his original readers of something that Jesus has already preached about. Really, it starts to echo Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 
There's a few places to go, but I like to go to, uh, to start to read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. One of the first things we see is something called the Beatitudes. All right? The first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus used the Sermon on the Mount to start to correct the teaching of the day. The religious teaching of the day, mostly done by the Pharisees, and saying, hey, we've, we've gone astray. That's, that's not, that's not um, God's original intent of how to treat people and how to operate in this world. And so we had to start to, to really correct some things. And one of the things he starts is, hey, those that the world just bypasses as insignificant. They judge by an outward appearance and then they just move on. says, no, no, God has chosen those. God has chosen to, to send his son to die for them. And the moment they believe that Jesus rose from the dead and they confess them as the Lord of the life, God has assured them eternity with him for all time. That's how our God operates. God does not operate like the world operates at all. And it says, but you have dishonored the poor man. It calls them out here. It says, I, I, know, I know some instances. You haven't respected the poor person. You haven't operated the way that our God operates with you and with me. You bypassed them. You've disrespected them. You haven't been treating the poor right, as a way to just continue to point them to the hope and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You bypassed them. So in a, in, a God, in a godly sense, hey, you, you've, you've missed it. You've missed that mark. And now he's going to go to a couple, even, even in a worldly sense, what you're doing, it doesn't even make sense. It says, are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? So even on a worldly sense, this, this doesn't make a lot of sense. The rich ones are the ones that are, are using their resources to sue you and take you to court. And they're the ones that are taking your property, taking your money because you can't afford to pay whatever it is that's going on in the court or the court systems are, are corrupt. They're using their money to get what they want unfairly. And these are the ones that you're, you're honoring. These are the ones that you're, you're bringing in and, and you're shunning the poor and you're saying, hey, sit here in the, the, the best place. Even more so, it says, are they not the ones who blaspheme the, the honorable name by which you were called? These are the same individuals that not only are they robbing you in the court system, but they're the ones that they're clearly all about self and about their name. And they mock Jesus. They mock his authority. They mock those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. They tear down the name and the authority of Jesus Christ to build themselves up. And these are the ones? These are the ones that you're going out of your way to, to honor and to bring to the, the best place in the assembly? So when even in a godly sense and a worldly sense, that's, this is not coming together. It's not connecting. And then we get to verse 8. It says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Let's get back to this. James says, This is also in the Sermon on the Mount. As chapter 5 continues in, in, in Matthew. Jesus says, reminds us, hey, the royal law given by the king of kings, saying that, hey, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, and all the law and the prophets hang on these two. The royal law, to love your neighbor as yourself, if that's what guides your relationships, your friendships, and how you treat people, then you're doing well. 
you're on the right path. You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had to correct some things. One of the things he had to correct is what the definition of a neighbor was. Because the Pharisees stood up and they said, hey, we're doing an awesome job because they were puffed up with so much pride. Remember, pride blinds us to truth and reality. And they had convinced themselves and their followers that, hey, we're doing such an awesome job of loving our neighbor. But the Pharisees were only loving those who looked like them, thought like them, dressed like them, did not oppose them. They were only neighborly. They only loved those who for themselves were easy to love. That had similarities. They didn't love the Samaritans. They didn't love the Gentiles. And through their pride, they were convinced, well, those aren't my neighbors. Because we're doing exactly what we're supposed to. We're loving our neighbor. Person who's right here, who has a last name similar to me. Jesus says, no. Let's expand this very, very narrow definition of who our neighbor is. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, no, we're to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. Your neighbor is not just the one who has so many similarities to you. Your neighbor is that person, but it's also one that has so many differences as well, that has a different background than you, that has a different amount of money that's in their wallet as opposed to your wallet, that's born on a, maybe another part of the world who looks differently. Even the ones that attack you, that person's still your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor, not just the ones who are easy to love and to respect, the ones that are a little more difficult as well. That's your neighbor. To so love your neighbor as yourself, humanity does not get to define who our neighbor is, our God does. And so we're going to align ourselves with, with God's definition. And then verse 9 just to make sure to his original readers he knows that everyone knows what's going on it says but if you show partiality you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors if you allow this in, in your life you allow this continue to uh, be how you treat others you're missing the mark you're missing the mark of, of Christ's perfection his holiness and that's called out as a sin and we are guilty of, of being a transgressor, transgressor of the law the royal law we don't get to define who our neighbor is, our God does, and we align with him. So on July 4th, um, we had 16 um, high school students and a couple leaders from um, our, um, our church plant, Harvest Turks and Caicos Island. They came for our high school um, camp. So our high school camp was, uh, was, was last weekend. We had 142 people there. It was, a, it was an awesome time. But they, they, they came from Turks and Caicos, and they, and they came a handful of days early. And so July 4th, uh, they were going to be at a, at a, at a family's uh, house, and they had a pool back there. And so we, we knew that they were going to have a fun time um, outside. And so I got on my phone, and I texted all of Ignite. And I said, hey, let's, let's, let's go over for a couple hours to this family's house, and let's, let's go and let's welcome these individuals. Because here in a couple days, we're going to be at Ignite Camp, or we're going to be worshiping Jesus Christ together. So let's, let's go and let's, let's welcome them, and let's get to know them before we, we go. 
So I had some, uh, some family from, from Indiana, so I wasn't there right away. I got there late with, uh, with my wife, Sarah. We walk in, and it, it, it looked like one of those stereotypical junior high dances where the boys are on one side and the girls are on the other. But in this case, it was all of the Turks and Caicos students and then all of Ignite students kind of doing things separately. I walk in with Sarah, I'm like, oh, well, this has to change. This has to change really, really fast, right? I walked in and all we saw were differences being played out. And so for the few minutes that, that, uh, that I was there, I was, I was asking so many questions to these Turks and Caicos students and, and trying to get some of our students to, uh, to come and to hang out. And they, they, they did, but it was still really, really awkward. The differences kind of trumped the day almost for the short amount of time that, that I was there. It was awkward. Two days later, Thursday night, first night of Ignite Camp, we're in the first two chapters of the book of Ruth. There's a lot that happens to Ruth in the first two chapters. Her father-in-law dies. Her husband dies. She, she leaves her family. She leaves the, the nation that she was born in. She goes and follows uh, into, actually to Bethlehem, where her mother-in-law is from, Naomi. A lot of loss, a lot of disappointment. Tristan Keiko's group, their main leader was a, was a guy named Sam. He was not going to be there until Friday. And so after we, we, uh, we worshiped and after uh, we spent time in Ruth 1 and 2, we broke up into to some smaller groups. And because their main leader um, of the guys was not there, I, I, took, I took all of the, the Turks and Caicos guys. There's a group of about, about, about 10 of them. And I combined them with a handful of, of our uh, freshmen and sophomore guys. It was, it was a group way too big for a small group. It was about like 25 people. But we were, we were sitting inside of a gazebo, and we had some dis- discussion questions that, had to pertain to, to Ruth 1 and 2. And there was a couple questions about, hey, you, you learned about the loss and the disappointments and the trials and the hurts of, of Ruth, but we're, we're, what about you? i tell you what, guys. Our God was faithful in that moment. He started just to tear down some walls and tear down some barriers and the things that we saw on Tuesday. He started to say, no, no, no more differences. No more living life by outward appearance. Let's get down to the one main thing that we have in common, and that's our relationship with Jesus Christ. And we had Turks and Caicos students say, this is the two-year anniversary today of my mom passing away unexpectedly. We had some of our students come up, stand up, put their hand on them, start to pray for them. Students from Ignite, they started to express their hurts, their, their disappointments, their losses, and they're crying. Turks and Caicos students, they stand up. And start to pray. God just breaking down these outward appearance barriers that we had set up. Two days later, Saturday night, we're almost done with the book of Ruth. We give the gospel. We walk through the ABCs to admit that you're a sinner, to believe the truth that Jesus rose from the dead, to confess Jesus as the Lord of your life. I asked all the students to close their eyes and and we prayed. And I said, with, 
with all eyes closed, hey, if, if, if you've just for the first time put your trust in Jesus Christ, for the first time you admit that you're a sinner, and now you're all in with Jesus Christ. You believe the truth that he rose from the dead. You're confessing him as the Lord of your life. He's in 100% control. I said, go ahead and just, just raise your hand or connect your, your eyes with me as I get to three. I went one, two, three. And then four hands just shot up from the Turks and Caicos students. They looked at me. Instantly, I'm doing what I'm doing right now, and I started to cry. I just praise Jesus. Praise God. Now, what if we were just to stop on Tuesday? Like, hey, there's too many differences. We come from two, two very different backgrounds. Let's just, that, let's just allow that to rule the day and to rule our worship. A lot of times that's what we do with our favoritism. We're like, this is too uncomfortable. So I don't want any part of it. So I'm going to step aside. But God said, no. I got a different plan. You're going to watch me work in an amazing way. And even though maybe inwardly you would want to, to walk away, I'm not going to let you walk away. And I'm going to reveal myself through my word. And you're going to proclaim the gospel. And four souls are going to be saved for all of eternity. So for us right now, let's very quickly, let's, uh, let's consider going back to verse 2, the three people that's represented in the scenario, and let's evaluate where, where is our, our even-then worship, okay? Or our even-then approach. For the ones who are already in the assembly, all right? The ones who are already here and the, the two strangers, the rich man and the poor man, they're, they're the ones that are walking into to our gathering Let's give the prayer of, God, give me your eyes. God, give me your compassion to reveal any prejudice that's in my heart. Lord, you change me. Lord, you transform me. Lord, you take over. Or perhaps we can identify with the rich person. Here's a question for all of us. Do I attempt to make things about me? For myself to get recognition? For myself to get special treatment? Or... Am I clear and consistent about making my Savior big and me small? Am I consistent in making my Savior big and me small? Let's also consider the poor person as well. The poor person knew he had shabby clothes. The poor person knew as he looked at the rich person that in an outward appearance, he he didn't measure up. There were differences. But the poor person still came. We don't know his heart, but perhaps he, he heard about this Jesus. Perhaps he heard about this Jesus who does not judge by outward appearance. Perhaps he heard about this Jesus and the worship of this Jesus is bigger and more important than where he sits. That this Jesus and the worship of him is bigger than who's to the left or the right of him. So what is your even then? Perhaps it's to worship while being willing for the Lord to show you areas of favoritism you may be blinded to. Perhaps your even then is to worship while being intentional to make God big and to make you small. 
that perhaps your worship is even when favoritism washes upon your shore. For your Savior is worthy and is bigger than where you sit. And who else is there? Let's give it all to Him. Would you pray with me? 